Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. We have a lot of stuff to talk about today, but where I want to really start is um, in relation to the last podcast we did last week, where I was talking about some IMF research on cryptocurrency. And the IMF was basically arguing that cryptocurrency was becoming increasingly correlated with stock market performance, and that as a consequence, it was losing its status as an investment diversification asset and that it posed systemic risk to the financial system as a consequence. And we then went on and had a broader discussion about cryptocurrency. And I made the point that um, I just don't get it. I don't understand cryptocurrency. And uh, that elicited quite a response from some of our listeners. Um, most of it not very positive. But uh, what I was really saying was the technology I understand but what I don't understand actually is how crypto can have inherent value in itself. Um, it is, in theory, a medium of exchange. Uh, same thing as money, at least in theory. So as a consequence, you know, why should it have a greater value than its purchasing power? But um, a lot of people disagree. And the, the one thing that strikes me about this and... I remember you did a really good podcast on Eamon Dunphy's stand. That's probably a year and a half ago at this stage about cryptocurrency. And I remember at the time you got a very, very sort of vitriolic negative response. And it, it struck me then and it strikes me now that um, a lot of people involved in the whole cryptocurrency area have a sort of zealotry about it. Um, you know, you <laughs> they, they are totally 
wedded to the notion and dare anybody actually criticize it. Uh, but anyway, I put my hands up and um, declared my ignorance about cryptocurrency and how, as I say, it could have inherent value. Um, I know you've done a bit of research and a bit of reading over the weekend on crypto. So tell us what you're thinking. Well, I certainly have been doing some work on crypto over the weekend, but that's just a continuation of lots of work that I've done over really um, ever since it first appeared because uh, Bitcoin is 13 years old and initially was uh, very much part of the dark web and was initially written off by many skeptics and cynics as essentially a vehicle for criminality, in particular drug dealing and a lot of stuff happening on the dark web to do with that. And the, the takeoff really came with the uh, money printing, um, partly after the great financial crisis, but particularly after COVID. Um, so we've had, a, it's been an interesting couple of years in which lots and lots of things have happened uh, I'm not sure, actually, if Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. It may or may not have been. I've not been able to figure that one out. But I do know that there are about 6,000 cryptocurrencies out there at the moment. Uh, so that's one very interesting fact. There's, there's only one dollar, but there are 6,000 cryptocurrencies. There's also all sorts of things um, called stable coins and various uh, ways in which these, these things are packaged and it can get quite mind-numbing, but I, it's something that I do know about. It's, it's money in general is something that I know about as well, because as a monetary economist or somebody that has some training and experience of monetary economics, we know a lot about the functions of money, what it is, what it isn't. Uh, we know a lot about the fact that money can be quite mysterious in many ways. Fractional, once you start using words like fractional reserve banking, a number of things happen. First, most people's eyes glaze over and they'd rather you talk about something else. But fractional reserve banking involves a lot of belief. And it means that people who put their money in the banks have got to believe they're going to get it back. Um, whilst at the same time, some of them, if not all of them, are aware that if they all ask for their money back, then they're not going to get it because of the way in which the banking system works to keep a little bit of money in reserve. That's the fractional reserve. And then the rest of it is lent out to somebody else so that you don't get it back straight away, even if you ask for it. And that it's in a way... Um, a system built on belief. So we, we do respect belief. And when people, before central banking, before paper money, before metallic money, used salt and seashells and gold um, because they, they had scarcity value and they were accepted means of exchange based on beliefs, all of these things can happen. So something like a cryptocurrency can exist forever if enough people believe it. And we don't disrespect those people's beliefs. But the fact is, we do know something about money. And so far, they do not, the cryptocurrencies don't fill the criteria that we economists uh, deploy when we ask, is something money? They're not units of account. They're not really means of payment, not a, in, in practical terms is what I mean. I, I don't say that nothing is actually um, paid in Bitcoin. Of course it is. They are used for payment. But Bitcoin's own technology actually doesn't allow you to do, as far as I understand it, as far as I'm told, more than five transactions a second um, and, an, and others seven or eight transactions a second. Credit cards and debit card networks allow uh, 25,000 transactions upwards per second. 
So you got to, to be a means of payment, you've got to have certain technical criteria fulfilled. And so far, crypto doesn't do it. Uh, currency, for something to be money, to be uh, accepted, again, another box ticking uh, bit of whether or not money, it has to be a reasonable uh, preserver of purchasing power um, or stable source of value. Now, of course, um, but stable doesn't mean constant. We know the dollar goes up and down and we know that inflation erodes the value of, of cash holdings. So um, these things do happen. But the volatility of uh, the standard deviation of these these things is is enormous. And um, it's another criteria that's, that's not fulfilled. So that, that's the way economists talk about crypto. Um, and that's why we're skeptical about it ever becoming absolutely mainstream but we don't dismiss it we don't say that it has no value you mentioned the question of value and it was one of the things that one commenter said is that um, people like us don't understand the value i saw i've seen something from a, a chief executive of, of a crypto exchange there are lots of exchanges out there who said it's, it's demonstrably got value bitcoin and others like this he said which it clearly does um, but he also went on to say but we don't know what that value is and I think that was quite a reasonable statement coming from from an insider. So I do think that there are lots of questions about this. Um, it's it's not that we don't understand it. I think we do understand it very very well. Um, it's just that you know it's our podcast, so we're allowed to ex- express um, considerable degrees of skepticism, and and we do have them. And again, I note that you know Bitcoin goes up and down a lot it is possible absolutely to make huge amounts of money it's possible to lose large amounts of money and some people have made and lost lots of lots of money Bitcoin peaked I think at about 60 something thousand maybe and it's at about forty two thousand dollars today so it's come down a lot over the course of, of it from its peak last summer I think so I do think that it's going to ultimately be seen as a bit of a bubble um, and it will be replaced or damaged or um, put in its place, if you like, um, by regulation and maybe even the issue of central bank digital currencies. And um, I would draw your attention, Jim, given that you and I are the sort of people that read these sorts of things. The House of Lords here in the UK issued a report last week on whether or not the Bank of England should issue a digital currency. And it came down to saying that in this 50-odd page report that uh, digital currencies are a solution um, to a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, so uh, I, I think they put it very, very well. And that even central banks issuing digital currencies um, raise a lot more questions than answers. But so clearly some central banks are thinking of doing this and may well, may well do this. And a lot of these things are around uh, for, for the long haul, I would guess. Um, but I don't think that they, they will go mainstream, mainly because if they do, do go mainstream, I do think the authorities will regulate them out of existence. But hey, that's that's what I think. It isn't necessarily um, what everybody else thinks. And, and I acknowledge and respect that. Does that make sense to you, Jim? Yeah, yeah, it does, Chris. I, I was making the point last week, and it's a point I will make again now, that personally, I would not invest in cryptocurrency. Um, and I readily admit, as you've said, that lots of money has been made on investment in cryptocurrency. Uh, but personally, I wouldn't invest in it uh, because I don't understand how it can have this inherent value. And would I put cryptocurrency into my 
pension fund, no, I wouldn't. Um, would I advise, and I know I can't advise people, but if, w- would I advise people to put uh, cryptocurrency into their pension fund? Well, my personal view is that I wouldn't do it. So people can make up their own minds on the back of that. And I guess I get some solace from um, Nuriel Rubini, um, an individual that I think we should all show a lot of respect for, given his performance in the run-up to 2007, 2008, great financial crisis. Um, remind me what Rubini said about cryptocurrency, Chris. I just read it out, actually. All that stuff about um, <laughs> not being a means of payment, not being a store of value or purchasing power. But, but he had a more eloquent things. description, didn't he? Yeah, he calls them shit coins. Shit coins, exactly. Okay. I wanted you to say that, not me, okay? Yes. Um, but no, yeah, thanks for that, Chris. Um, uh, m- moving on a little bit, um, Davos is normally taking place um, at the moment. It's not on this year. Well, sorry, it's not on in January because of COVID-19 um, and it's being pushed out to the summer. But Traditionally, on the opening day of Davos, uh, Oxfam publishes its Global Inequality Report, which it duly did today. Um, You know, in an Irish context, it showed that the wealth of Ireland's nine billionaires increased by 18.3 billion to 49.7 billion since the start of the COVID-19 crisis. It showed that the world's 10 richest um, it says men. Um, I'm not sure if it's men or individuals, but the world's 10 richest individuals doubled their wealth to 1.3 trillion euro. And um, dom- domestically, um, we've seen the uh, people before profit particularly come out arguing again for a wealth tax in Ireland. And um I I suppose my perspective on this is that, you know, the introduction of a wealth tax to try and tap into that sort of wealth, if that's what you want to do, um, is logistically very, very difficult because people are mobile, financial assets are mobile. And um, if the tax system turns in a way that they would regard as draconian, they're just going to move elsewhere. and, And that then would be a loss to the domestic economy if it were to occur at least that would be my belief. Um, and I, I also think that given the incredibly progressive income tax system we have in this country, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the wealth that's generated out of income is at least taxed um, and it's, ta- it's taxed in a very, very progressive way, as we know. And uh, I would also feel that unless you were able to get um, global coordination on the taxation of wealth, that it would be very difficult for one or a small number of countries to introduce a wealth tax without creating serious problems. And um, the for-profit people arguing that, for example, in France, they have a wealth tax. Well, what I would respond to that is that has the wealth tax in France solved France's problems? No, it hasn't. France has serious inequality problems. It has serious social problems. It has a very good health service, but it's a health service that France can no longer afford and is struggling to finance. So this notion that slapping a wealth tax on the small number of really wealthy people is going to solve all of our 
um, economic and social problems, I find quite fanciful. What do you think? Yeah, and the, these arguments have been going around now, actually, for decades. And I think the point that you make about wealth taxes having to be globally coordinated, a bit like the corporation tax, actually, is that you, you have to do it in a globally coordinated way because otherwise the base upon which you are levying the taxes, whether it's corporate profits or um, wealth, will just shift around the world. That's just the nature of things. That may not be what people want. They may wish the world was organized in a different way, in a fairer way. Um, but that is, as they say, what it is. Uh, the other thing I would say is that um, it's always a pragmatic question, which is how much would this raise? I think a wealth tax in the United States would raise quite a lot of money, actually. Um, I think a wealth tax in Ireland would raise a lot of money only if it was, as in the United States, levied on where the wealth actually is. There aren't enough Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos is in Ireland to um, raise any serious um, amounts of money that would make a difference to government finances, indeed to anybody's sense of fairness, to be honest with you. Um, you have to find where the wealth is. In the United States, there's a lot of it in people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos' pockets. Uh, those pockets really are quite shallow in Ireland. Where Ireland's wealth is, and Ireland is a wealthy country, is tied up mostly in property. And the second source of Irish wealth in terms of the amounts of money involved are in people's pensions. So if you're going to introduce a wealth tax in Ireland, you've got to go after those two things. Um, and if you want to do that, good luck. Um, in a way, we have already taxed both those things in different ways over the years. We do have residential property tax. We, we don't tax property very much in Ireland. But the, um, the left is opposed to any property tax in this country. That is an illogical thing that the, the left seem to um, not recognize that if you are going to have a wealth tax, you've got to tax property properly. From an economist's perspective, I would say that, you know, taxing property is um, a good idea. It's an, an immobile asset. It's not the sort of thing can be shifted across borders very easily. And countries like the United States actually tax prof property, residential property, a lot more heavily than we do in Ireland or the UK. Uh, so, you know, there is um, there, you know, there is that interesting anomaly is, is that Ireland taxes uh, property, a, the wealth tax that exists already. It's a lever that could be uh, pulled. It is a tax button that could be pushed in Ireland very easily. You just simply raise the rate of property tax to say if you if you raised it in Ireland to, to United States levels, you, you, I suspect you'd have a social revolution. But there is a good economic case for taxing property. Uh, the, the, I think that the tax breaks that are given to pensions um, are in, in both Britain and in Ireland and elsewhere, you know, one, I think they're, they are very generous and one could argue that they need to be scaled back somewhat. That, that, that's an argument about pensions and, and should always be nested within how a society provides pensions overall. One well, Chris, can, can I respond to that? There are tax breaks given for contributions to pensions but it's a deferral of tax rather than writing off tax because when that pension is drawn down, it then becomes part of your taxable income and people yes. will end up paying tax on it ultimately. So it's Absolutely. a deferral. And, and it's also a deferral that actually provides an incentive to people to make a contribution to a pension. Yeah. And if enough people 
particularly in the private sector, do not have their own pension provision, the onus is going to have to fall on the state to provide income for those people when they retire. Otherwise, you will get this serious social and economic problem of a cohort of the population called the retiring poor. So, uh, and I, I guess this brings me to a broader point about... Can I just respond to that, Jim? Campus, Which is that yeah, I, I, t- I totally accept that the reason why tax breaks were originally put in place to encourage people to save is that they were put in place to encourage people to save so that they wouldn't then fall back on the state once they hit pensionable age. And that's, that's a good idea. And to the extent that it is just tax deferred rather than tax avoided, then that's fine. Over time, the state is indifferent. You know, sometimes it would prefer the cash now rather than later, but provided the state gets the cash. But there are anomalies within the system. For example, why does, why having been given these tax breaks and you say it is tax deferred, that does 25% of your pot then become tax free? Do you think that, do you think that makes sense? Uh, yeah, I think I think it does. I think pe- when people retire from their working life, um, you know, they clearly face, in most cases, a significant drop in their income. So allowing people get access to 25% of the pension fund tax-free up to a certain limit, um, you know, I, I, I think makes um, social, economic sense for the people involved and indeed for the state. So I personally... I do not have a problem with that, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced of the logic of the tax-free lump sum. I like it personally. I think, it's, you know, it's great. But from a society's point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure. But, um, you know, we, we, these are the arguments. And I did was about to say that if you are going to reform personal pensions and the tax breaks around them, you have to nest it within an overall uh, reform of the pension system, which, as we know, is badly needed. It's a system that's designed for 19th century demographics. Um, and we, we are, as far as I know, in the 21st century. And, and we, we really do need to get this one sorted out in a broad restructuring, not just partial. Yeah, I mean, there, there was serious abuse of the system over the years because there was a very high limit on the amount of pension fund you could build up and still get tax breaks. I mean, that has now been reduced to two million. So I, I think those sorts of moves yeah. make perfect sense. But, but I, I, I kind of believe that um, to achieve certain objectives, you do need tax incentives. Um, and a lot of very wealthy people who are obviously the ones, and I'm not talking about pensions specifically here, I'm just talking about tax incentives generally. Um, people are given tax incentives to fund certain activities that otherwise would not occur. So we're achieving a social good using an economic good using um, tax incentives. And of course, the only people who can afford to invest money in those tax incentivized areas are those with money in the first place. So obviously, it's the wealthier are going to benefit from those incentives. But without those incentives, you actually, um, you know, economically and socially, um, you could be a net loser as a country. And um, so I think we need to be, we really need to couch this whole argument about taxing wealth and stuff like various tax incentives in a very, very careful way. Otherwise, you know, you could do serious damage to uh, the economy and to society. Yeah, I I think that's reasonably put. Mm. Chris, you um, wrote, uh, even if I say so myself, a great piece on Boris um, towards the end of, I think, Friday, you posted on our Substack account 
And um, I, I want you to elucidate a little bit on what you were saying about Boris. But, uh, you know, one of the areas, obviously, one thinks about in the context of Boris is his handling of Brexit and the various promises that he made and the lies he told in relation to Brexit over the last couple of years. And before I allow you to um, get into that, uh, I just want to demonstrate something about the impact of Brexit um, in a sort of a micro way. Today, we got the um, merchandise trade numbers for Ireland up to November, published by the Central Statistics Office. Okay, and I'll just throw out um, a few statistics. Um, in the first 11 months of the year, our merchandise exports, that's our exports of physical goods. You know, it, it does not include the various services, which are a huge part of our export base, but the physical stuff, um, 151.8 billion in the first 11 months of the year, the highest level ever, up 1.3% on the previous year. Um, imports up by 17.2%. And within the overall export performance, food and live animal exports were up 3.5% um, to 11 billion. Um, chemical and related products down by 3.8%. And um, chemical and pharma, that is, accounted for 62.5% of our total merchandise exports in the first 11 months of last year. Um, I'm not quite sure what's happening there, but within that, organic chemicals are down by 16.8% and medical and pharma products are down by 0.3%. So that's the overall assessment of trade in the first 11 months of the year. Ireland is continuing to perform strongly on the overall trade front um, as I say, that decline in the very important chemical and pharma component um, is something I guess we need to keep an eye on. But if you look at the specific um, trade relationship with Great Britain and Northern Ireland, it does tell an interesting story. Um, Ireland's exports to Great Britain were up by 20.4% last year, okay? Uh, food and live animals down by 3.6%, but overall exports to Great Britain up by 20.4%. But then, so we're still selling a lot of stuff into Great Britain. But then if you look at the other side, what we import from Great Britain, it declined by 20.7%. Um, and food and live animal imports declined by 38.6%. So clearly, and, and this is evident from EU stats with Great Britain as well. Clearly, EU countries are continuing to sell a lot into Great Britain, but it is not happening the other way around. Great Britain is clearly struggling to sell stuff into the European Union. So I guess that's another indictment of Brexit and the impact, the disproportionate impact it's having on Great Britain as distinct from the rest of the European Union. Um, another interesting story in the context of the island of Ireland is that trade between Ireland and Northern Ireland continues to boom in both directions. Um, our exports were up by 48.4% um, with food and live animal exports up by 40%. So we're selling a lot of stuff into Northern Ireland compared to um, 2020. And, and on the import side, um, our overall imports are up by 64.3%. And the food component is up by 43.6%. So we're buying a lot of stuff from Northern Ireland. So that just shows that the Northern Ireland protocol 
from a Northern Ireland economy perspective is working. You know, it is facilitating trade. There, there is no doubt about that. And um, that does sort of highlight um, the, the lies that were told about Brexit and the disproportionate impact it's having on uh, the economy of Great Britain. Um, last week, we had a short discussion on Boris Johnson's problems. You followed it up with, um, as I say, an excellent piece about Boris' critique. Um, and obviously, Boris's perspective on Brexit um, features very prominently in that whole narrative around lies and so on. Um, and I kind of asked you the question last week if 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 I believed, uh, sorry, if you believed that if Boris is kicked out of office, which um, does have a distinct possibility at this stage, one would have thought logically, you know, would it have any impact on the UK's whole attitude towards Brexit? Um, and logically, it should given that Brexit is actually proving quite disastrous for the economy of Great Britain? Well, I think you're right in terms of the direction of travel there, Jim. With respect to all the trade statistics, it's quite clear that Britain's trade has been harmed with the European Union, not least with Ireland. And the numbers that you went through there are an eloquent testimony to the fact that the, the numbers aren't great. But there's been an interesting shift in the way the debate is conducted in the UK. Up until relatively recently, I mean, this I'm what I'm about to say is an insight given by a great blog or uh, newsletter written by somebody called Gerhard Schneider, called a Brexit Impact Tracker. And in that uh, newsletter, he says that up until now, um, the, people like me have been, and all of us Remainers, have been challenging the Brexiters to explain why there are no benefits. And the Brexiters are much better than us Remainers at setting or framing the debate. They won the referendum because, you know, people like Dominic Cummings were much better at public relations, at communications, at messaging than we are. And rather than being putting them on the back foot now by always saying to them, you know, there are no benefits. Look, there are no benefits. What they come back with to us now is, is that they're saying to the Remainers, well, you know, you said that this was going to be a self-inflicted wound. Now, this is the bizarre nature of the Brexit debate, Jim, is that we said that it was going to be a self-inflicted wound. But, they say, it's not nearly as bad as you expected it to be. In a way, they're taking issue with your, your word disastrous. So, all of a sudden, us Remainers are on the defensive, despite the fact that Brexit is bad. It's because it's not as bad as expected, as that perhaps that original project fear, the numbers surrounding that, suggested. Because it isn't an unmitigated disaster in the sense that you can see unemployment uh, shooting up or this, that or the other economic consequence of it. You do have to do that delving into the trade numbers that you do, which most people, of course, won't do. They'll see a headline, but they'll move on. And so this is the best way to describe Brexit's impact on the British economy is that it's basically like a slow puncture or maybe a dragging anchor. It means that the economy will grow, but nowhere near as much as it would have grown if it had been inside the European Union. And because we don't live the counterfactual, for most people, that doesn't matter. So that's why the Brexiteers are so clever in putting it back to us in the way that they are. And of course, the, the underlying um, truth is that, that they're really deflecting from the fact that it is bad. It may not be as bad as some people expected it to be. It may yet 
be be much worse in the years ahead. But at the moment, I think, you, you, as I say, you have to do that delving into trade numbers and things like that to understand. Uh, when this pandemic is over, I think there will be more impact on people's lives. The fact that it's that the hassle you're going to have to go through when you arrive in Lisbon or Paris or Nice or Frankfurt for your holidays or your business trips in particular, and the hassle you're going to go through when um, you have to get a visa. If you're a Brit going to the European Union, you're going to have to pay some money, seven euros, and you're going to have to get in line. It's those sorts of indignities rather than the trade numbers, important though they are, and we will keep hammering away at those trade numbers quite rightly, it's going to be that sort of thing that I think will have greater comms, greater uh, impact on people than, than that. But yeah, so we, you know, Brexit is dreadful. Uh, it was the device that gave Boris Johnson his premiership. Um, that's completely come off the rails now. You, were, you made some kind remarks about something that I wrote uh, a couple of days ago, which has had a fantastic reception um, in terms of both the, it, the numbers of people who have read it, because we, of course, have access to all of this data now, and also the comments and uh, various nice things that people have said coming back from that. One of the interesting things about the last two pieces that we have written, Jim, I think it's important to flag this as we come up to our first anniversary next month of this podcast and Substack site is the, the readership numbers that the last two things that you wrote and I wrote and I'll within spitting distance of the sort of numbers that uh, I used to get for my Irish Times articles. Readers with a long memory will, will perhaps remember that I used to write for the Irish Times. So it, it's, it's proof of concept, if you like, that this is working. And for that, I'm grateful to you and I'm grateful to all our listeners and readers. But that last piece on Boris, which I say has been very popular, wildly popular, if you don't mind me saying, um, rehearsed all of the arguments, which is that he's always been a mendacious liar. And one day those lies we all thought would catch up with him. The question that everybody is asking now is, is this the moment? We don't know. Um, he's going to try and blag it out. He really is. He's, he really is going to try and ride this one out. And so opinion is split between those who say, well, Britain and Johnson in particular has become a laughing stock. He can't survive, can he? That would be my perspective. But you use the word logic, Jim. Logic doesn't apply to British politics at the moment. It hasn't done since, well, for a long time, certainly since the Brexit referendum. And I think it's going to be a while yet before you can apply logic. So watch this space. This story will run and run. And Johnson sincerely hopes that he is going to run and run as prime minister. OK, Chris, we wrap it there. Yeah, I think that's all for today. Yeah, good to talk. See you next time, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.